host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pedio Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my pal, Matt Porter. Matt, it's been way too long. I think it's been a couple years since I've had you on the show. I'm excited that we finally have a chance to do this. How's it going, pal? It's going great. Yes, it has been too long. Uh, I have seen a lot in the past, uh, however many years. It might have been since 2019. Like, uh, yeah, I think it was a Stanley Cup but, final, right? Yeah, and the world is the same uh, since then. So it's it's yeah. nice. It's nice to, to recoup. No big changes. Um, here's the plan for today. We're going to do a, a Patrice Bergeron appreciation show because I've been looking for an excuse to do this for a while. Not that we necessarily need a special excuse, but I feel like him hitting the thousand point mark for his career on Monday night gives us just that. And you and I are two of the biggest Patrice Bergeron appreciators. Although I will say, regardless of your allegiances, I think for the most part, his approval rating in terms of hockey fans is about as good as it's going to get. Like I feel like everyone has a deep-rooted respect and appreciation and admiration for Patrice Bergeron. Do you think that's fair to say? 100%. I can't imagine anybody. Like, I've never seen anybody with a wild anti-Patrice Bergeron yeah. take. I, just, I can't stand I don't know how classy that guy that. is. Yeah. God yeah. damn. Yeah. What, would you, what would you even base that in? I just, uh, well, we're just I, playing for the Bruins, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But even still, you know, ah, I hate that guy. He's so good. Yeah. That kind of thing. Well, I, it's, I, I think it's there are players. I, I will say, I think well. there's probably fans of Atlantic Division teams that for the past six years have been baking into their projections for their own team that the Bruins are going to take a step back because Patrice Bergeron is going to decline. And so they've been waiting endlessly year over year and just being sorely disappointed. So maybe those people are, are not the biggest fans of him. I think it surprises everybody that he's still going at 37. Like he had so much left on the table last, like if he retired, you'd think, I mean, he was almost a point per game guy last year. I know obviously points are everything as we've, as we've discussed, but it's, it would be ridiculous for him to retire at this point. I don't know how many more years he wants to do this, but he looks like a player to me that can play until he's 40. Yeah, he I, can. I, I'm as surprised as anybody. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll, we'll save that sort of the, what the future holds for him next. I, I kind of wanted to spend the good chunk of this talking about what he is as a player now and what we see from him. And, and I, in preparation for this went back and like watched most of his shifts from this season. I wanted to really just get a deep dive of a feel for myself. You get to cover him up close and personal and on, on a daily basis. And you sort of get to see the magic of that. And I feel like he's probably one of those players. This applies for most guys I'd say, but just because of how detailed his own game is, I feel like watching him in person gives you an added appreciation to what he does because sometimes he does things like off the puck and maybe like the puck is ahead of the play. And so um, if you're watching just on your laptop, the camera is following the play and he's behind the play and he's probably already doing something to give himself a slight advantage for whatever's going to happen next. So I feel like getting that bird's eye view of watching him live from the press box probably gives you an even greater appreciation of what he does out there. A hundred percent. And there's, there's a lot of different ways that, that we could take this, but I, I see him, I guess a good way to frame it is like I see him as the ultimate support player. Mm. Like his his ability to fill the lane behind where the puck is and where the pressure is from his teammates is, you know, we were talking off camera about his superpower, which he really, I guess it would be his hand eyes you mentioned. Like mm. it's probably just that ability to just be in a lane and close off options elsewhere, allowing a guy who has fresh legs or, you know, like a Jake DeBrusque or a Brad Marchand, um, even a, a defenseman like Hampus Lindholm or Connor Clifton, you know, when when they're you know in zone, he allows everybody else to kind of do the work where he's in the middle of the ice, where he's filling those lanes, and, and it's also it's also his ability to make a quick bump off the wall or pass out of the corner or like pick up a secondary assist. Like I, it's it's so fitting for me that his thousand point the other night was a secondary assist where he just had a, a carry through the through the neutral zone, made a little kind of a delay move, and he just kind of got everything going, and then it was on a Brad Marchand goal. I mean, that's completely fitting for, for me. He's, he's compiled a lot of points, especially this season, with those kind of secondary plays, those support plays. Yes, well, and I think the thing for me is, like, if you look, what's remarkable about it is you'd think in theory, I mean, it is, the league around him, is getting younger and I think discernibly faster. 
right? Like every year new players come into the league and they're just so much faster than the previous guys that were playing before them. And despite that fact, he's getting older. You'd think he's theoretically at least physically slowing down, but then you look at his actual production and there's really like literally zero signs that his efficiency is declining in, in even the slightest. In fact, I think you could put together a pretty pretty compelling argument, and I guess I will here in a second, that he's actually getting better, which is just preposterous to think about a player who's turning 38 in July. He's in year 19 of playing in the NHL. He's played north of 1,400 games now, combined regular season and playoffs, and 167 of those are playoff games, and I think you could probably say like those count for one and a half or two regular season games in terms of the physical and, and emotional toll they put on a player's body. And so you look at the totality of that and the fact that he's producing the way he is now, where he's on pace for 39 goals, 78 points, and is still the the best five on five driver in the league. I think to me, it's it's just remarkable that he's still able to do this. So I kind of wanted to to use this time to dive into those details of how he does it, because you're right. He's the ultimate support player. He does a lot of subtle things that, kind of happen before the actual play that we generally care about in highlights. But I, I want to talk more about what he does because it feels like it should be more replicable, yet there really is only one Patrice Bergeron. Yeah, it's his mind, obviously. And right. I, I think I, his, for me too, it's it's also his impact on the team. Like, you know, you have now a full generation of centers who have watched him and tried to learn and, and emulate what he does, you know, whether it's, you know, how does he, what does he do after the puck is dropped? You know, like a, like on the face, like he, let's say he loses the face off. Where does he go? What does he do? Um, it, it's, there's, there's so many different things that, that, that you think of, like just knowing where the space is, you know, reading off, reading off of his teammates I think of this goal that that he scored the other day against Chicago, where it, it's it's Chicago's getting cooked. Like they're absolutely, you know, they're done. It's 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 a one nothing game, and they and they look. I mean, they end up losing six to one. They're just a mess. But it's all Bruins in the offensive zone. They're rotating around. They get he gets two quick one timers, and it, it's his teammates reading off of where he's going. There he's reading off of where where they're going. He just basically finds this soft area where there's seemingly chaos elsewhere, and he's open for an easy one timer. Like he's, I've, I've in my in my writing and my reporting, like it is kind of difficult to write that concretely. Like yeah. how a guy gets open, how does he find a soft area? Because it's such obviously it's such a free flowing game, but he just always seems to do that. I mean, his career highlight, like the number one, like like the most you know, iconic Patrice Bergeron goal against Toronto in 2013. You know, it's just him finding a rebound and it's always coming. It came to a stick. And I know it's like, you know, not the, not the most nerdy way of explaining it, yeah. but he finds those, those soft areas. Yeah. The way I've heard it described, um, the way I've heard it described is he's always available for a pass in both, in both zones, right? Whether it's in, in front of his own end and defensive zone, and he's kind of helping one of his defensemen supporting them for a breakout or if it's in the offensive zone and he's kind of like a pressure release valve in the bumper for whoever has the puck on the wall or whatever, like you can always count on him being available for a pass. You're never like, if you're a quarterback, for example, and you're looking around, you're like, Oh, where's my, where's my number one wide receiver. And it's like, Oh, he's being covered. I can't throw to him on this play that that would never happen. If you, if Patrice Bergeron was your number one wide receiver, cause he's always available for a pass. Yeah. And he's, and he's not that, he isn't that number one wideout in the sense that, as we've said, he's not, he isn't the physical freak, you know, dominant guy who's going to just Randy Moss somebody, you know, for a ball. Like he wins battles, but it's by positioning. It's by being above the pockets. Like if he's, if he's not above the puck in the offensive zone, he knows exactly the risk he's taking, you know, to get underneath the guy, but you know, and win that battle and, and find somebody, Obviously, you know, the chemistry with him and Marchand is a big part of his career. And you're just being just years and years and years. I mean, it's it's been, what, 11 years now they've been together. I mean, that's you just don't really see that uh, with line mates in the NHL. You know, they've <laughs> the conversations they've had over the years, um, you know, of, of plays, especially off the face off. I remember uh, I think you're talking in the preseason, I believe, um, 
you know, just about their face-off plays. Mm-hmm. And that, that's something that, that I've watched throughout the years and just enjoyed. Um, you know, they're, they're quick stuff off the power play where they scored two seconds, um, you know, especially when Tory Krug was there. I mean, those things, those plays that they made were, were amazing to watch. Um, but one thing, too, like, I don't want to underrate his skill in this because right. he, he has added that one-timer. Um, you know, really like in the past five or six years, it's really been a part of his game as he's, you know, become one of the premier, if not the premier bumper players in the league, especially on the power play. He gets it off quick. It's always accurate. And one of the things that I've noticed too, like he will subtly change the shooting angle. Like he scored a goal against Jordan Bennington, um, you know, earlier this season where he kind of, he settles the puck and he like, he fakes that he's going one way, but then he just kind of quickly snaps it. You know, uh, across the net into another open corner, and you know, so just little little things like that. You'd have to kind of slow down the video and, and you know and watch. Um, he's a really skilled player. I mean, that's it's just if you were describing Patrice Bergeron to somebody, it would be he just he does everything well, but his his brain is elite. That's basically kind of kind of Bergeron. Well, it's interesting you noted but, that because I've got him down for forty seven one timers this season and watching mm-hmm. all of his shots back. And I don't have that in comparison to the rest of the league. I'd imagine it's pretty high compared to his peers. And especially when you consider that he's spending a lot of that time in the offensive zone in the meat of the defensive coverage, right? Like it's not like he's on the outside and he's just open for one timers. He's like around bodies all the time, yet he's making himself available to get that one timer off. And so to me, it's like, yeah, that, that perfectly captures and illustrates that dimension he's added to his game and how he's made himself such a threat in the offensive zone uh, over time. And I, I, I think that is kind of a more uh, nuanced and new wrinkle to his game that he's added as he's gotten older. Yeah. And how many of those one-timers were blocked? Like not, not many, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely getting it through. When you, when you talk about him being a, a five on five driver, uh, I was looking at some of the numbers this morning. I mean, obviously, you know, the numbers are always there. Like you look at this point in the season I feel like, and this is no disrespect to the Devils, I'm not the guy that's going to like, you know, do a deep dive on them and tell you if they're legit or not. I believe, I tend to believe that they are. Like, I, I see a lot of good there. But like, it seems like when you look at, you know, expected goals, four, five on five, like it's always the top 10 are like a superstar, like a Jack Eichel this year, Matthew Kachuk this year, um, a guy like Dougie Hamilton, maybe five guys from whatever team is on a heater, you know, no mm-hmm. disrespect to the devils and Bergeron and Marchand. And it's, that's them every single year. Um, one of the things that, that I think is critical in, you know, is his usage and like in five on five um, time on ice, average time on ice, he's, he's t- about 12 minutes a game, which mm-hmm. is obviously not a lot, but then you look at what he's doing in those minutes and like, his efficiency is incredible. If you look at the raw scoring chances that, you know, at five on five, when he's on the ice, it's 140. Now, raw numbers obviously don't do a lot for anybody, but that's 137th in the league, right? That's not a ton. He's 468th in the league. against, you mean? Like total? Yeah. No, just, just raw scoring chances for that. The oh, Bruins been on got. the ice for. Okay. Yeah. Yes. 140 of them. That's 137th in the league. He's 468th in the league in five on five time on ice. Mm-hmm. Around that that 140 number, Leon Dreisaitl, Miko Rantanen, they're around that range. They're 142, 143. Um, is playing 17 minutes a night plus at five on five. Yeah. Rantanen is playing almost 18 minutes a night. It's just so much is happening when he's on the ice for the Bruins. And he's not even doing it. It just seems like he's not doing a lot. It's just, it's just well, shutting off options. I think being well, from the middle of the ice. And, and and what I will say is, you're right. I think that's a astute observation by you. I think he was playing like 13 and a half, five on five minutes a couple of years ago. Then they toned it down into the 12s. It's actually down to 11:23 per game now, which is pretty much the lowest mm-hmm. he's ever played. Now he's still playing 18 minutes a game, all situations because they use him on the first unit power play, first unit penalty kill. Yeah. And I think it's a lot easier for them to to pick their spots with them a little bit because no team has held the lead more than the Bruins have this season. So when you're playing from ahead, you can kind of lean on other teams and not necessarily just have to get your top line out there all the time. I think that number is probably going to go up a little bit as the season goes along and they get into different game states. But I think it's smart. Like, yeah, he's played a lot. He's older. They should be playing the long game and preserving with him. 
And that efficiency, yep. whenever he's out there is, is remarkable. Like I've, I've got some of the numbers here, the high danger chances with him on the ice at five on five are 54 to 22 for the Bruins. <laughs> They've got 67.7% of the expected goals with him on the ice at five on five. And I'll keep in mind, a good chunk of this is without Brad Marsh and, and Charlie McAvoy, who both missed the yeah. start of the season. Five on five goals are 10 to three with him on the ice, which is yeah. remarkable to me because the Bruins have given up three five on five goals against in 220 minutes with him out there generally playing against the other team's best players. Like it's yeah. comical. All of his five on five numbers almost cannot even be compared to other players. They're there. It's like, he's generally in his own stratosphere, which is just so, so remarkable. Like I thought last year, I was like, wow, I can't believe he's doing this. And then he's somehow taken it up another level this season. Yeah. And you mentioned the penalty kill too. Like early on, it's, it's been more Thomas Nosek and Charlie Coyle as their top penalty kill pair. So I think they're they're smart there. You know, they don't have to burn those matches. They've been up so much. I mean, that they're his offensive zone, you know, he he's getting like sixty percent something like sixty percent of his of his starts in the offensive zone. Like he's but it's like you know that any critical situation, he'll be out there. That's just a given. Um it's just it is it is ridiculous that they are playing this well early on. They can rest him. They didn't need Brad Marchand or Charlie McAvoy early on to bank as many points as they have. So it's just that I I, I see him, you know, being a twenty minute guy in the playoffs, which is what you want. And that's if they're going to extend his career like they have. I mean, they're doing all the right things in that in that regard. His skill, by the way, when we're talking about his skill, I mean, I would say shooting accuracy probably pretty close to elite. I mean, I think of a, there was a preseason goal against Vitek Vanacek where he just wired it from like 40 feet, like a Pasternak style one-timer. I haven't seen that since, but I mean, he can definitely, you know, he's definitely a very accurate shooter. Well, which is um, interesting you say that because I feel like for a while there, I'm not, I don't have the numbers pulled up right now, but I feel like for a few years there, he was more of a volume-based scorer who like his shooting percentage actually yeah. wasn't that high. And then... Yep. He's now he's become like a, the pure efficiency guy. It's, it's it's so wild. Yeah, well, there's there is one one part to that too. Um, I, I was talking with him uh, last year about this. Like he will just if like if the team needs a face off, you know, he 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 is the guy that will at the start of his shift throw it on net, you know, glove side and try to get a face off. Like there is that. I don't know if I don't know if. You know, the stats crews and rinks are counting that as a shot on that. I would assume they would, you know, if the goalie gloves it. But mm-hmm. he'll also go, if he knows that he has Brad, you know, Marshawn coming off the bench or, or somewhere, you know, coming downhill, he will throw it blocker side or low pad to try to get it in the corner, you know, and then set up their offense that way. So, like, he's he is wasting shots, um, so to speak. But, you know, for him, it's calculated. Well, here's I wanted to highlight two more things that, I, that I've noticed from him you know i was talking about how he's always available for the pass the the timing of how he makes himself available to me is impeccable mm-hmm. right because it's one thing for a guy to just stand in the slot and with a stick on the ice and waiting for it that makes you less dangerous by default because the opposing defender can tie up your stick if they see it there right like they know okay this guy's a threat i'm gonna neutralize it he's like he's got his back turned to the play on some of these where the puck's at the point and then he spins around and all of a sudden his, his sticks down. And I think a great example of that was the set play they ran against the Canucks the other night where they scored, where the puck yes. goes around, it goes to David Pasternak at the left flank. And he kind of disguises like he's going to take a shot because he's one of the best shooters from that position. And instead he rifles a shot pass right on the tape of Bergeron, who half a second before that wasn't even in the play. And he had turned around, spun around, put a stick down and he redirects it into the net. And I think, to me, that demonstrates three things, right? One, Bergeron's greatness in terms of the timing and knowing to make himself available. Two, the familiarity between those guys and the chemistry they've developed and how long they've played together. And three, also Pasternak, I should say, his development as a dual-threat playmaker, right? Because he's become so much more yeah. than just a goal scorer. And so you see all of that in action, and it's just it's it's beautiful. It's like it's hockey at its at its finest level when they when they're clicking like that. Yeah, it's the it's the chemist. That's the chemistry. When people talk about, oh, you can't really like you know put a finger on chemistry. That's chemistry right there. Um, it, it does make me think of you know, the chicken and the egg of 
you know, Bergeron's numbers over the past five, six years have obviously risen, you know, and that's partly due to usage, partly due to him becoming, you know, a, a key power play player, um, you know, becoming more, more mature NHLer, but obviously, you know, Brad Marchand's development, David Pasternak's development. I, I would love to be able to figure out how much of that is Bergeron, how much of that is them. You know, obviously you could just say, oh, he's playing with better players, you know, so obviously he's going to get more cookies, but it, it's, I feel like he makes them better more than they make him better, but it also goes back to, you know, he doesn't have to do as much as he ages. You know, he has Brad Marchand on the forecheck, Jake DeBrusque on the forecheck as the F1, and he can always be, you know, the high guy in the zone while a Connor Clifton, you know, has figures out what he can do in the league as he has over the last, you know, three, three years, um, you know, where he's figuring out where he can go, you know, when he can pinch down, you know, when he can do his crazy rushes that he likes to do. Um, a guy like Hampus Lindholm coming with his incredible, you know, size and strength combo. Um, you know, he, he now he finally has a, no, no disrespect to Anaheim, but now he finally has, you know, a center who's always going to be in the right spot, who's always going to be filling the right lane, closing off the right option, um, or rotating high if he pinches down low. That's been huge in Charlie McAvoy's development, too. Um, you know, McAvoy loves to go around the net with the puck. Bergeron's always going to be in the right spot where, you know, and if he's not in the right spot, filling directly filling, you know, backfilling where McAvoy was, somebody else is going to be doing that because Bergeron was closing off another, you know, lane or, you know, filling another spot where the Bruins needed somebody. So it, it for me, it all comes back to him. And, you know, like I said before, too, like the impact that he's had on the other centers, the other forwards in the organization, we're not even going to get into the leadership part. Like yeah. that's the, that's kind of the behind the scenes stuff that like, you notice when you're around every day is like, just the little things he does, you know, the phone calls and the text messages and the conversations and whatever, um, you know, and that's a whole nother thing, but just physically on ice, you know, like the impact that he's had on everybody just is immense. And the reason that they've been, you know, with Pittsburgh and Washington, one of the, you know, the, the three most winning team, winning this teams over the last decade. Yeah. Well, you know, the other point that I was thinking of while we we're talking, I, I should mention his face offs because I think simultaneously it's something that is in league circles overrated and underrated at the same time, right? Depending on who you talk to. I think the issue, the two issues we bump into most when people, you know, get overly excited about faceoffs are one, for most guys, they're like good faceoff players are like 52 or 53% of the time they're winning the draw, right? And then when you think about it, it's like, all right, well, compared to their peers, if they're taking like 15 to 20 draws a game, that's not actually that much of a surplus in terms of how often they're winning you the puck. And second of all, it's, we, we know that what happens after the draw is just as important. We don't necessarily have a stat to capture that because it's more defined by like, you know, the events that happen after there's not one catch all, but that's just as important. Yeah. If you win a draw and then you don't do anything with it, you may as well have not have won it. Right. Or if you're giving it right back, the reason right. why I bring it up with Bergeron is because once you start getting into the sixties, which is the neighborhood yeah. he's been residing in, that's an entirely different extreme, right? He's at, 62.3, 61.9, face offs last yep. year or the last three years. But most importantly to me, he's 65% on the power play. Yeah. And I think that situational ability is huge because we talk about how no team runs better set plays off the draw in the offensive zone than they do. And I think part of that is having the confidence that you know that he's probably going to win the draw. So you can design these set plays and know that, okay, once we get it, we're going to run it as opposed to being a true 50-50 puck where it's like, who knows what's going to happen here? It's like, I think the Bruins at the start of every power play go into it expecting to be able to run their best play within five seconds of that first draw, right? And I think that's such a luxury for them to be able to have. And that's what makes him such a threat. And I think that's also a big reason why, amongst many other reasons, they're always one of the best special teams teams in the league, right? Like power play penalty kill. It's because they're starting a lot of these plays off in optimal position to do whatever's next. And they have the plays to do so. Yeah. I think his face-offs in that sense are, are properly rated, right? Mm -hmm. Because like not only is he winning 60 plus percent, if you look at this year, he's in, in terms of total face-offs taken, he's third in the league. So there you go. I mean, you're obviously starting with the puck, so much more than not. And then you have the chemistries we've talked about with, you know, Marsha knowing where to go off the draw, Pasternak knowing where to go, 
smart offensive players like Lintom and McAvoy, knowing where to go, Grizzlick, same thing. Um, so it, it's just it's a huge advantage for them. And and then, you know, the the confidence too of knowing that if you do mess up, you know, there's a giveaway, you know, you need Lena Solmark to make a, a big save. Well, okay, now you're in the defensive zone. And there's a good chance that if Bergeron doesn't win that defensive zone draw, he's at least going to make it so you have a chance of getting the puck out of the zone. Well, I love it, Matt. I think uh I think we gotta take a break here. But um I think we did our I think we did our due diligence here on Bergeron. I think we did him justice. I, I hope that uh you know, for such a perfect hockey player, it's tough. There's always much more that we, much more meat that we left on the bone. But I think we did a good job. I'll let you plug some stuff here before we sign out. Um, what have you been working on? Where can people check you out? All that stuff because it's been so long since we had you on the show. Yeah, I'm, I write for the Boston Globe. Um, you know, I'm with the Bruins uh, all season long, and you know, pretty much every practice, every game, um, covering them in some form. Uh, also writing the Sunday notes column, which covers the league. Um, I like the kind of stuff that's behind the scenes, you know, the kind of the little stuff that kind of humanizes the game. I really like to dig into that in, in that column, especially, but um, I'm also on Twitter for now <laughs> where I, I like to throw out kind of little uh, fun quotes and things like that, that I pick up along the way. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if you want to know uh, the personalities of the Bruins, I think I'm a pretty good resource for that. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, that's about it for now. Well, this is a blast, man. I'm glad we finally got to do this again. And we're certainly going to have you back on sometime down the road. So, um, until then, take care and we'll chat soon. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. All right. We're back here with more on the hockey PDO cast. We say goodbye to our pal, Matt Porter. And now we're being joined by Sean Shapiro in his place instead for the part two of today's show. Sean, you got big shoes to fill, but other than that added pressure that I just put on your plate, what's going on? Uh, not much, man. We're, uh, I, I don't know. I guess we won't spoil anything, but we're, we're, we delayed recording for this to get to the, uh, to watch the first half of, uh, the first Canadian, uh, World, World Cup, Cup game. game. Yep. Well, 86? Yeah. I'm, ho- was it? I, I'm yeah. hopped up, man. I've had a lot of coffee. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've already been podcasting today, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to chat with you. I'm, uh, I'm just excited in general. Got a lot of, a lot of energy flowing through the body right now. That's good. That's good. I've got the, uh, down here and I'm in Detroit area. We got Thanksgiving or as you guys call it Thursday tomorrow. And, uh, mm-hmm. I've got Thursday. A, yes, I've got a, I got a brisket going on the smoker right now. So it'll be, it'll be a good day in the Shapiro household too. I love it. All right. Well, here's the plan for today. You and I are going to, because you've written about this recently, about yeah. uh, the connection between Lindy Ruff and this year's version of the New Jersey Devils, who are currently riding a 13-game heater, as uh, as Jack Hughes so eloquently put it, and the 2015-16 Dallas Stars, which uh, hold a, a spot near and dear to my heart. Um, where do you want to get into this conversation? Because obviously the, the connection with, between Lindy Ruff there and sort of yeah. how both teams really have... You know, especially started out strong, burst onto the scene, um, have captured people's attention and imagination with how they play offensively. Like you can definitely see the parallels between the two. Yeah, I think kind of that part right there is one of the I think one of the similarity things. I think there's the thing that was I you look back and you forget I, I think kind of like in game win streak for New Jersey makes it feel much like the thirteen game the heater to use the, mm-hmm. the appropriate, there's the appropriate the terminology. Parlance, yeah. Here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it really makes it feel like uh, what New Jersey is doing is, is different in a way, just because you win 13 in a row, you get all excited about it and everything like that. But New Jersey 16 and three after uh, 16 and three after 19 games, the 2015, 16 Dallas stars are in four actually after 19 games. So pretty much pretty similar, almost the exact same point, just instead of, instead of having being three and three and then or winning yes. 13, it was a couple, yeah. a couple other, a couple other things sprinkled in there. And it's, it's something where you're watching New Jersey play. They're fun. They're exciting. You see Lindy Ruff being the coach. Mm. And as someone who kind of saw something up close and with this in Dallas, and you saw that with the team and we were all hoping, even though Dallas lost in the second round that you're like, oh, 
team that could become a copycat team where people play the game this way and everything like that. And then just two, basically within two and a half seasons, Dallas is now became one of the most boring teams on ice. Mm-hmm. And want to live in the moment i'm someone who likes to live in the moment and be happy about things but at the same time you can't help just but because of the start and the man behind the bench and and how they're looking part of me just always became it was always like should i appreciate i i didn't want to not appreciate what the devils are doing but also part of me was like do i i don't want to get burned again right like Mm -hmm. i don't want to get burned again that this is a that this is uh that this that what happened to Dallas what happened to New Jersey and so to me I think it's uh it's a fascinating that I asked myself I have some after digging in a little bit more I have I think I have a little bit of so a couple more answers but that's that's why I wrote the piece about it this week just because there's there's some key tenets that are very similar and there are some things that are that are different. Well, here's my question to you: yeah. Did we ultimately really get burned? By that first iteration, like I guess you know the the, the way yeah. it played out over time certainly, yeah. um, I think framed our perception of it. The team started twenty two five and two that season under the star. Or the stars did. They finished with one hundred and nine points, which was second in the NHL. They were third in goal differential because of the NHL's stupid playoff system. They wound up playing the team yeah. who was third in points that season in round two. So I think that's an important piece of context. And they lost in seven and clearly like the the game seven stink bomb at home where they basically like might as well not have showed up to the rink that night um, leaves a sour taste in your mouth. I, I view that though. I understand the ultimate end goal is to win the Stanley Cup when you fall short, especially in that fashion. And then things unravel that quickly, like heading into the next season and all that. And you don't have anything to show for that run. Certainly, I, I get that. I view that as like a, a, a very good season though. Right. Like that. And, and especially. Oh for, yeah. It was, it, yeah, it was, a, the, it was, a, it, yeah, it was, it was a good fun season and it's something yes. where, and I, I think kind of look back at it in hindsight, it becomes more so a question of you would take that season. If I could offer you that season, you would definitely take that season back. You would do that. The question, the biggest issue with in Dallas became that should have building block it should have been mm-hmm. it, it should be the okay well hey this will be the of, of a continued era of this in dallas this will be something that that goes to the step two and okay you know what they lost but they lost to, to st louis in that game seven but you know what let's get some better goaltending and get get some better goal shore up the, and all of a sudden we win we win the cup in two to three years from now playing the style that's what it should and that's the biggest kind of lesson for me from Lindy Ruff's time in Dallas is I think he took lessons from that Dallas and that and, and how things kind of fell fell apart. And I think he's applied some of them to this New Jersey team initially already. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or I mean obviously this year, but like but applied some of those right away so he can have a better success and i think the devil's organization as a franchise and this is not a lindy rough thing this is the harris blitzer sports entertainment group need to take lessons from uh to look at the mistakes dallas made dallas ownership made and being kind of overreactionary to yeah you got beat up by the st louis blues so we must become the st louis blues that was something where i think at some point new jersey will lose a game again at some point allegedly they'll get beat allegedly at some at some point they will and of course it'll, you know what it, it'll happen to like 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 let's i'll pick it it'll it'll be like a carolina team or that's a bad example like it'll probably be like it'll probably be like florida or something like that and like they'll lose two to one they'll get goalied or something like that and then the first commentary be was oh well new jersey needed to be tough and, yeah. at some point that's that's gonna come um, one game, and and when that franchise and ownership needs to remember, like, look how much fun you were having. This is just that. That's all that is. Just mm. it's one game. You're where the where you're going, and the name of the game is entertainment, and the devils are entertaining. So I have a question like, for you about, big, about it, I have a question for you about Lindy, because yeah. I remember that year. That was like I think that was the first season that I actually started the PDO cast, and 
during that run at the start of the year where they were winning a lot of games and taking the league by storm, I remember I had Mike Johnson on the podcast and, and he had, I guess he was broadcasting a game for them at the time. And so he had like spent some time around the team and got to watch their practice and like sit in on one of their video meetings or something or whatever and talking to people. And he was blown away. I remember at the time by sort of the, the, the coaching style or, or what they were enforcing in terms of like, you know, most coaches, when you have a video session with your players, you're showing them stuff they messed up at in the last game, right? You're like, all right, you messed up this. This was a blown assignment. Okay, we can't do this, this and that. And you're sort of focusing on the negatives to try to weed that out of out of their system. And instead, what Lindy was doing was much more like, all right, this is good. Yeah, we want to do more of this. And you know, they were showing like positive plays they were making, especially offensively. Yeah. And they were really just hammering that home and trying to trying to do what they were doing well already even better as opposed to working on the negative negatives or trying to kind of fix or um, cover for their weaknesses. And I, I wonder, I mean, obviously a lot of time has passed since then. Yeah. Do you, do you think like that was a, a reason for both the success and also where things went potentially wrong because they were so one-sided or uh, I don't know what the question yeah. I have here, but I'm kind of yeah, curious no, no, no. because yeah, it, yeah. it was so yeah. different compared to what you hear from a lot of coaches. Yeah. And I, I think it's becoming a little bit more common now in coaches. You still mm-hmm. see a lot of guys, Hey, we're fixing from mistakes, but I think there are certain, there have become more coaches that teach from the let's do this and kind of try to lead rotation to the player of obviously, Hey, we're not we're not reiterating this fact because they went wrong and, and you and let's reinforce the positive. Lindy's kind of communication and coaching style with 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 Dallas and from I, I haven't heard anything different about it with New Jersey and it's it's the it's the uh, it's the compliment sandwich of of coaching right like it's the compliment sandwich where you lead with hey you did this great let's work on this a little bit. You did this great. And it's like, right. it's one of those things where when things are going really well and you think about the two things you did great and you keep doing them, but uh, that kind of delivery and be the, the, the drawback risk with that delivery is if sometimes the middle part of that compliment sandwich is so important that it's getting lost by Aiden and the outro, all of a sudden you're kind of taking you're running into you're running into an issue there and so yeah it was uh i i think it worked i think it's a style that definitely works but you have to have you have to have a, a bad guy right like like you have to have a you have to have an you have to have like it can be your your head coach can be that guy you can uh but you need to have one guy on your who's willing to be kind of that 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 bad guy who can it, it's funny like i just did something about this because I, I did something about this today on the uh, on the Red Wings coaching staff, just kind of the dynamics of that coaching staff because of, of the fact of the matters is the Red Wings coaching staff is not available to the media, so I had to kind of go ask the players for is and everything like that, and it was kind of interesting where um, Bugner kind of plays that role of the hey we need to appear where we need to do more here, like he's the guy who kind of not the fall guy, but he's the guy who kind of is like willing to be like the strict parent on the coaching staff. Right. And, and, and I think you need that if you're going to be this teach only from the positives and you should teach from positives. I think you should, but you also have to have either there either some, either that, that mode yourself that you can switch to or have another assistant coach who has enough authority to be able to like be the bad guy and, and correct that way. And, and I don't know if that's the I, I I truly think Lindy's time in Dallas fell apart more so from things more out of his control than that. But I think it, it's something where the players ran into even more. The players kind of things went bad. It's sometimes harder to teach from the positive. But right. I think a lot went out of Lindy's control too, which is kind of one of those things where if you're a Devils fan and listening to this. I, I I would take this all as a positive because I think the devils are in a much better spot to get through whatever rocky part comes. Dallas was because I believe their defensive structure is better. Yeah. I believe their I believe their goaltending at least has a chance to be better. And it's also, and I also believe that you have an ownership group that is, not, and this is a key point I made, because I think people always forget about this. You have an ownership group 
who is a sports ownership group, not a hockey ownership group, mm-hmm. where yeah. the Harris Harris uh, the Harris uh, Blitzer group. They also own the Philadelphia 76ers. They own a part of Crystal Palace in the English Premier League. They are not a team, a group of owners that only care about hockey. And owners that only care about hockey tend to be the ones that to be a little more hands-on. And I want the team in this end. There's Blitzer, basically. They want to like, okay, we want a team that sells tickets. And we want a basketball team that sells tickets. We want a soccer team that sells tickets. And then they let the hockey people do the hockey things. And for all of those reasons, if you're a devil fan right now, you'd be thrilled because I think the stakes that were made from not allowing 2015, 16 Dallas stars to become more of an era, I think can be avoided in New Jersey. Well, and we've already seen that, I would I would argue, because yeah. Yeah. how many organizations would have gone through this life cycle the devils already went through where the joke the running joke for the past three years or whatever was, oh, the New Jersey Devils just won the offseason again. Yep. And then the yep. games would start playing and they'd be an utter disappointment and all the same things would keep happening poorly. And and some of it was bad luck, right? Like they think yeah. they 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 bring in a goalie to supplement Mackenzie Blackwood and Corey Crawford. And then he decides to re- and then he retires before yes. he even yeah. plays a game for them. Then Jonathan Bernier and he gets a debilitating hip injury like a couple games into his New Jersey Devils career. And so yeah. part of it was bad luck, but also as you mentioned, we've seen NHL organizations who are run very irrationally kind of switch on the fly when things don't work out. And so after mm-hmm. one or two years of disappointment, it's like, all right, well, this clearly isn't working. Let's totally change course here. And instead, they've really seen this process through for the most part and are now finally reaping the rewards of it. So I think the patience pays off. The other point that I would make the difference is, you know, I think it's easy to point to Kari Lettinen and Antony Emi that season, which was their their battery and net, and say, well, that clearly wasn't good enough. And they were 27th in save percentage throughout the regular season, right? And so yeah. it's clear that that wasn't a strength. But it's funny when you look back at their un- un- evolving hockey, both those guys pretty much played to their expectation. Like generally yeah. when you see 27th in save percentage, you'd expect, wow, the expected goal, uh, goal, goal saved above average must be, or goal saved above expected must be really in the negative. And they were both pretty much neutral. And that's because while it was the best offensive team, they were essentially sacrificing everything defensively to get there. And so all of their defensive metrics were were pretty poor. And that's not something we're necessarily seeing with this year's version of the New Jersey Devils. It's only 20 games. Yep. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're clearly, I'd still say their strength is being young and fast and attacking off the rush. And sometimes that's going to lead to rush chances against. But so far, defensively, only the Hurricanes give up fewer shots against, and no team gives up fewer high-danger chances or expected goals against than the Devils, which is remarkable considering what they also do offensively. So it's a great environment for Vitek Vanacek and whoever's going to be their goalie, and if they can keep up anything resembling that, I just think structurally it's so different than what that yeah. Dallas Stars team was. You know what I mean? 100%, and that, that's a big thing. Like I, I picture... the you remember, the you remember the Dallas Stars of that time, and you remember they were exciting not just for what they did, but for there was all, you were almost guaranteed to see a two on one rush going the other way within the first five minutes of the game. Like it was just almost like clockwork. You'd be like, okay, at some point you're going to see a two on one rush going the other way. And you're going to see either Alex, you're probably see Alex Golgoski sliding across his belly as the guy tries to saucer pass, uh, tries to saucer <laughs> over his shins. Yeah. So you knew that was going to happen in five minutes of the game. And New Jersey doesn't give up. New Jersey is exciting because of what New Jersey does. They're not exciting because of what what could happen to them, but only but purely because of what they're doing with the puck, as opposed yeah. to the Dallas team was so much of they were exciting because of what they did, but also you're like, oh, at any point they could be it could go the other way. Just just like it was and I think New Jersey is such a great example of you talk about a coach and you look at a guy who I don't know how much Lindy would be willing to admit this, but I think Lindy learned a lot from that. And I think Lindy added more structure to what he wanted because he went from Lindy went from being in Buffalo where his plan was, okay, I have Dominic Hoshik to, mm. to, to going to Dallas. And I think he kind of finally found a bit of that. I, I think he learned and he found that balance. And I also wonder if him, being an assistant coach with with the Rangers and kind of taking a step back to be able to reassess and think about his approaches, I, I would imagine that probably him 
put this team in the spot they're in now just because it's it's something where he's different and he's also he, he's still the same guy in general it's fu- a funny lindy ruff story i saw him about three weeks ago when new jersey was in detroit i had a i, I had a pretty colorful tie on and he told me uh he told me it was a little bit too loud and interrupting our interview so he's <laughs> he's always a <laughs> always been a He's always been a good guy that way too. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> Regardless of way, like the personnel he's working with is is very good. Like yes. this is this is yeah. a good collection of players. Yes. So yeah. I, I do want to note that you know when we're talking yeah. about like kind of lessons that you can take from from past teams, though. I was thinking about that 2015-16 Stars team because do you remember what their big trade deadline acquisition was? That was the. Uh... I have that right in my head. That was the uh, the shot blocker, right? I, Chris Russell. No. Yes, yep. the human shot blocker. The whole we we have we must we must block more shots because for whatever reason we must yeah. block more shots. Well, so here's the thing. <laughs> so that deadline, I remember specifically because they were linked to Dan Hamus, who was not prime Dan Hamus at that point of his career, but was still a good defenseman in my yep. opinion. And the yep. Canucks were going nowhere that year. And he was an impending unrestricted free agent. And Jim Benning decided not to trade him at the deadline, even though he was going to walk in free agency for nothing because out of principle, really, he felt like other GMs were trying to steal him for nothing. And he needed to yep. assert himself as you can't push me around, which was hilarious. Um, and, and Dan Hamby's wound up, I believe, signing with the Stars that summer and spent a couple of years playing yep. for the Stars. And I do wonder that, that crossroads moment of not that Dan Hamby's at that point of his career would have made that big of a difference, but it was such a signal for me that like, oh man, this is not what I would do with this team in highlight in identifying Chris Russell as the player that this, this is going to push this team over the top as the upgrade at the trade deadline. And I remember I had Elliot Freeman on my podcast that night after the trade deadline, and he was like, I know what the analytics say about Chris Russell, but Jim Nill assured me that, you know, their internal numbers like him a lot more and this and that. I remember just being like, all right, I'm, I'm excited to see how this plays out and, and we know the rest. Um, But yeah, like there's those crossroads moments like that. I think like feeling the need to not necessarily pivot, but try to diversify yourself or whatever. And then in theory, in theory, you're adding a different type of player, but that, player doesn't make sense and actually kind of makes you worse or the opportunity cost of acquiring them you could have gotten someone better that would have helped you more i think like a lesson like that is very important for this devil's team and i like what they did this offseason for example right like they added players with different skill sets and andre palat who has been hurt and john marino but they're also fitting in much more with what the devils want to be and want to play like as opposed to adding someone just because the of whatever skill set we think they need covers their gap you know what i mean yeah, it's, it's 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 something where it's kind of it's very I'm not this deep of a thinker, but it's funny because this comes to mind for me. Uh, there's there's kind of there's some old piece of literature. I think it might even be like the Sun Tzu thing or whatever. It's like there's the saying where it's like when you reinforce one flank, you're weakening the other or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's kind of what and that's kind of New Jersey did what Dallas did, where they were like, okay, we're gonna take assets to reinforce this element and then weakened another part of the game and that is i think that's another thing where if you're new jersey like this team go with this team win with this team don't don't think okay we got to go we we got to go make a trade for well, i mean he got traded today so he won't it won't happen but we don't make a trade for reeves tomorrow right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, yeah, a, a key lesson is yeah. I do believe that these windows to compete for young teams come a lot quicker than than you expect or than you think. Like, I, I just reject the notion that you have to you have to take your lumps or you have to lose in the playoffs and you have to get that veteran experience before you can take take the next step. Like if you have good players, you should be going for it. And I remember, I think back to the 2017 version of the Toronto Maple Leafs when they had Austin Matthews, William Nylander, Mitch Marner, all on entry-level contracts. And so they had this cap space to play with for like one or two seasons. And they spent all of it on Patrick Marlowe and Ron Hainsey, who were like in their mid to late 30s, because they felt like that supplemented this group. And instead, they probably should have been 
ultra aggressive and been using that cap space to bring in another really good player in the prime of their career to help them over the top, you know, and instead they felt like they needed to take kind of gradual steps instead of just going all in. And I think if you have a really good team like this, like not that you should be trading all of your first round picks and everything at the trade deadline just to try to win a cup this year, but there's no reason to suggest that you can't kind of have your cake and eat it too, in terms of they have the runaway, right? They have Jack Hughes and Nico Hishier signed long-term. They're going to get Brad signed, whatever this summer, whatever he costs. So there's years ahead, but they can still kind of expedite that process and go for it this season as well in a, in a calculated manner. Yeah. I mean, they should treat the roster management and the long-term look of it the way it's, it's, I mean, I actually know it's a perfect example. Look how Canada came played in obviously they they didn't they missed the penalty kick but look how canada came out and played in the first half mm. experience you don't need to be experienced you don't need to be you don't need to be experienced you don't need to have been there before to go out and play a certain style or to do something you don't have to no one says you have to quote unquote earn the opportunity to win that's just a fun thing that people like to say after they lose like it's you don't have to for it and that's i i hopefully new jersey keeps doing that because they're fun to watch and once again, I go back to the fact where we need a team like this to win. We need more teams like this to win because it creates more sense of copycat league and hockey becomes more fun in general. So, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, I love watching this team. They're really fun, even if they start losing games here or there and they're not just going to win every single one. Um, I'm 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 in on this team. I think they're I think the yeah. what they've shown in terms of the process is is very legit. So, you know, if things change, they will readjust their opinion but for now the way they're playing and all the numbers they're posting i think totally pass both the eye test and the uh and the numbers test all right sean we're gonna get out of here keep watching keep watching soccer um i'll let you plug some stuff uh where can people check out your work yeah i got this obviously we you and i have done some work been fun we've done some work together over at ep ringside mm-hmm. we got some stuff there and i've also got the the sub stack going um got got a story coming over story coming over the next couple actually where um it's it's red wings related but i thought it was interesting where i've got a story coming on the dynamics of the card games on the team playing the where how how various guys you and i last week we talked about kind of players don't realize what's interesting so you Mm -hmm. find tell them that they're interesting and i've got a story coming on that where how uh groups of detroit red wings playing cards on the plane and how it brings the team together and i'll have that up on the sub this week which is shap shots and I got it on the Twitter. It's on Twitter and at Sean Shapiro. And, and luckily I can still plug that platform. And as I can still plug that platform, it's on Twitter. (laughs) I love it. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time. It was a blast catching up with you. We're going to have you back on again soon. Enjoy that brisket. And uh, yeah, thank you to the listeners for listening to the hockey PDO cast here on the Sportsnet radio network.